From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. I'm joined today by Dr. Vera Michaelchik, the Associate Director of the Connected Learning Lab, a collection of researchers at UC Irvine who research, design, and mobilize learning technologies in equitable, innovative, and learner-centered ways. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Can you start out by just telling us a little bit, what does connected learning actually mean? And it's great to be here. Thank you so much, Garrett. Uh, connected learning is a relatively new term that really takes a look at three broad, inter, let's say, intersecting circles. One is the interest values, meaning that, that an individual might have on a personal level. So we think about what an individual child or adult or youth really cares about in their lives and that can be that can be uh, based on all sorts of things their cultural situation their um their idiosyncratic interests and in, say something like uh i don't know like a sport or a or an online activity um so that's the first that's the first circle the second circle uh, are the relationships that encourage and support those interests and values everybody's immersed in social world in the social world uh, whether it's family, school, friends, community, organizations, and of course the very um, significant immersion we have in, in the world of media and shared culture. And maybe in my mind, I think one of the more important things is what kinds of opportunities do we give young people especially to bring their own interests, meanings, and values and the relationships that support those to um, greater depth, greater understanding, how do they use opportunities that may or may not be available to them? Um, uh, well, they won't use opportunities that aren't available to them, but, but how do we think about opportunities that young people need to have? How do we as people that work in the world of educational design and social design think about how to bring opportunities that capitalize honor and support the, the assets and interests young people have so that they can grow? So we have these three circles individual interests, values, meaning, the relationships that support them in all sorts of ways, including nurturing those values, meaning, and interests, and then the opportunities that allow them to grow in those particular areas. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. One thing that's always struck me, and one reason that I like connected learning uh, especially, is because we always say at SOAR that learning starts with buy-in, right? It's really tough to convince a student to learn something if it doesn't start from some, some sort of interest, right? So connected learning and that facet of our own beliefs, but also just the parallels between um, like self-determination theory. Uh, it's not exactly lined up, but their emphasis, this motivation theory of you know autonomy or given that choice and relatedness, the community piece you spoke of and incompetence, I just think connected learning is a much more authentic and, and learner-centered way to, to design uh, schools and learning experiences. So um, just something that stuck out to me as you were saying that. Very, very true from our perspective. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. So one thing I'm curious about and something I like to say to all people in this industry is um, this has to be a passion. Like people don't really jump into education usually unless there's something in their own background that made this uh, something they wanted to spend their life doing. So could you quickly tell us uh, what about your life? What was your path that led you to this work? Well, um, interestingly, I was studying film and media as an undergraduate, really, really interested in some of these cultural issues about the um, about visual images about the, the 
kinds of um, media products that young people encounter and, and how they interpret those, what they do to their pathways of development, moral development, social development, intellectual development. And having that, that passion, trying to really understand how we make meaning in our cultural productions, that led me to think about, about the role of that in education. So I originally started thinking about, well, what visual literacy may be? And then I said, this is much bigger than that. This is something that really has to do with, with broad, whole person pathways. I got in, and from there I got interested in what are the epistemologies or ways of knowing that, that affect how people interact with opportunities to learn in the world and it just it just snowballed from there i i do want to say that i had um some encounters a lot of encounters with people who worked in the world of progressive education when i was very young one particular family friend uh, daniel c jordan um who's long deceased but he he was always talking about about the whole person and um and just interpreting the phenomena of the world in ways that 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 capitalized on natural curiosity natural inquiry and it just that had stuck with me so it was very easy for me to jump on and into progressive education wonderful and how about this work specifically what was your professional path that led you towards um, the connected learning lab Uh, that's that's a really wonderful question because I think it aligns very well with what Sora is trying to do. I was looking at schools and thinking about all the ways that people learn in non-school settings because there is so much potent learning. I mean, most of our time is not in school and we learn so much depth, so much meaning, so much purpose out of school and a lot of our, our interest-driven learning is is done out of school. Um, and <clears throat> And I was actually very interested in exploring what modes of learning interactions might be uh, valuable to adopt in school. So I really was looking at family learning, after school learning, I, um, uh, you know, all kinds of programs that don't have the same kind of advancement and, ex- and assessment and time constraint structures that school have. And I went off to a small island in Micronesia, a very small island, um, and was doing a comparative study of what it means to learn in school, in family, and in church. Now, family was continuous with prehistoric times. Church was the first Western institution introduced on the island, and it radically reshaped island culture, and then school was much more recent. And what's remarkable about this particular island, it's called Koshrai, it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, is that it's basically got 100% literacy. You know, it's not the kind of thing you see in most countries in the world and most places in the world. And it's the way the church operates. It just inducts people into this very natural and and um, and very, very heavily scaffolded uh, encounter with, with written text. And everybody reads, everybody presents and it's and there's always the possibility to come back you don't you're never kicked out it's never too late you never fail you just can always come back and when i was there i wrote about a library being an ideal school because people can come in with their interests and develop their interests there and actually i worked on building the library system there i also think um, that the informal world aligns with um i spent some time at stanford working on on pedagogy there and aligns with the with a catchphrase we were using a little bit, um, declare a mission, not a major. And and that we may put a little 
too much emphasis on people finding a, a, a super big passion, but people, everybody has curiosity. Everybody gets attracted to things happening in the world. So, so this informal space that taps into things that people are curious about, things that people are attracted to, things that people might want to play around with or mess around with that may in fact develop into a great passion. This seems to me like an important place to explore, to understand possibilities for reshaping schooling. I love that. The listeners at this point are probably tired of hearing me talk about my own experience, but I'll, I'll quickly say, um, when I first read Mindstorms in, in high school, because I went to a lot of high schools and I was convinced that my traditional uh, education was was not not very good, I'll say. <laughs> so when I first read Mindstorms in high school, I was captivated by um, Poppert's idea of uh, you know the Samba school as the optimal informal learning environment. So um, how do you think about the schools of the future? Will they look uh, structured? Will they be these informal, you know, um, multidisciplinary community environments? Or when you imagine the future of schools, where does where does your mind go? You know, in in some really important ways, um, it goes to the word apprenticeship. I just think we have we have so many rich opportunities for people to learn from one another and. Um, and it, and you talked a little bit about Sora's, um, Sora's model of using industry leaders to help young people learn. It doesn't have to be that. We apprentice to one another on a daily basis, even when we apprentice to our peers. And this constant interaction around things that people know and other people want to know is, is part of daily life. Um, and I think through that mechanism, we can go deep and not wide. I think it's one of the biggest problems with schooling is we, that we really have this proliferation of all these things people to know. And what happens is we know people forget, you know, we cram for the tests. It, these facts and fragments stick with us long enough to regurgitate them. And they don't really develop our, they don't really develop our depth. When I was in high school, I have a, my high school story is that I lived in Southern California at the time and, and know why just the people I hung out with we'd often go see Ray Bradbury speak Ray Bradbury was a character he didn't drive he had all these wonderful qualities and I'd read a lot of his work and thought he would be fun to see he was famous we knew his name and he always talked about let young people follow their heart follow their dreams study what they want to and go deep with it he was a Flash Gordon aficionado as a kid, and everybody said, what are you going to do with Flash, all your Flash Gordon time? Of course, he became one of the greatest science fiction writers um, in, in our history. And I and that stuck with me, you know, John Lennon's aunt saying, the guitar is a nice hobby, you'll never make a living out of it. You know, we, have, we have a lot of these famous people, kind of quotes, but it doesn't have to be famous people to recognize that going deep gives us the habit, gives us the experience of knowing what it's like to immerse ourselves in something and it's true even in the academic world i have a friend whose daughter was an undergrad at stanford you know very traditional academic pathway and but she never really got statistics and 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 for one summer she got to go down to costa rica and do some research on bats and frogs and in the context of wanting to understand how to care for bats and frogs she learned a whole lot of stats and it was her love of it was her love of nature that made her understand that statistics would be a tool for her her ability to to care for it. And I think that we just need to think that that is always possible. You can always get some of this, these content type tools, these um, disciplinary tools, whether it's biology, math, any of these things through 
through an interest in developing our own capacity to engage with the world, to, to serve the world, to support the world, to be an actor in the world. I love that. I love that. That's something we try to explain to parents as well, because a part of reimagining education involves um, convincing people that there's a room for improvement, right? So a lot of our job in running these schools is telling people, um, you know, some of the shortcomings and how we want to, you know, assuage those shortcomings. Um, And one thing we, we talk about is... You're, like you said, these uh, these fragments that come across from the traditional education system, it allows students to, to have zero deep experiences, zero um, you, using Popper's language, you know, objects to think with, these mental models. When you allow students to go deep and to have an interest that they spend a lot of time with, they now have almost a point to reason from, or you know, a node to connect other knowledge to. So. I'm a, uh, that's saying I'm 100% with you on that premise. Thanks for, thanks for saying that. Yeah, agreed. So agreed. So how do you think when we're talking about um, reimagining education, it's very difficult, especially to reimagine schooling without assessment. You know, it's the, it's the thing that, that will probably exist forever. But what format, what form it takes is very much up to debate. So Sora has a very unique form of assessment involving longitudinal tracking of of competencies and content. But I came across in your research this concept of naturalistic assessment. So what does that mean to you? And how does it differ from traditional assessment? Yeah, it's a, it's something I've written about and I've really cared about for a very long time. So thanks for asking that. Um, when I think about um, about human activity, and again, I've I've studied informal learning so that I can think about what is it really in these all these different spaces. You know, I came to realize that we're always assessing our human resources. Now think about it. If you want to play a game. You're going to think about who's in your immediate social environment and what they what do they know. You're not going to play a really hard game if you're working with kids. You're going to play something like shoots and ladders if you're with little kids. But you can get, you know, you can get into pretty some pretty sophisticated and complicated games if you're with sophisticated adults that play that game, right? Uh, you know, you want to rebuild an engine. Who who do you know that can help you start learning that? Um, what's on YouTube? That's a social resource. Um, all the way from from the earliest age to, to, to graduate school where, where you know, people are learning science from their professors. There's, there's always this environment, and the professors are trying to think about what kinds of projects they can run and who they have as grad students. Every, every human activity has some assessment of what human capabilities are in the immediate environment, and our goals get set based on that. So you're not gonna, again, play a really hard game with really young kids, and, you're, and if, you, you know, if you wanna learn learn um if you want to if you want to you know set a high goal for yourself to learn something you're going to think who can i learn it from or what resources do i have to learn it from so there's there is there's this constant assessment of who knows how to do what we live in a social world where who knows how to do what is always on our minds whether we realize it or not it's something we do and so the naturalistic assessment Pieces really thinking how do we do that in ordinary ways in ordinary um, in our lives and which is very built in naturally to our activities it's not bracketed apart as a test it's within the learning activity within the normal activities that we that we think about these things and that can be captured that can be captured through documentation through you know a lot of games have embedded assessments in fact a game is essentially a series of embedded assessments that 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 um, that allow you to advance in the game based on what you are able to do in that game. And 
And so some of my work has been around, okay, if you're if you have an after school program and kids are designing egg launchers and they're going off the roof, um, what are the moments that, that where kids have to make decisions about how to do those designs? Can you systematically see which kids have kind of gotten it and which haven't? It's very formative, it's very much about interaction, and you help them along. I mean, there's always that. And then when it comes to launch the cars off the roof, you've got a lot of information about it, but the kids are having a great time. So my work has been has been to say, what are the moments where what people know how to do becomes important in social interaction, which can be part of schooling, certainly, and then how do you capture that in ways that allow you, A, to, to help kids move along if that seems to be the case, to document and say they've got it if that's what you want to do, and otherwise to just keep using these displays of their capability to keep advancing. And, and yeah, it's complicated sounding. It's more complicated than a bunch of tests that are paper and pencil that you can score through a through a, one of those scanning machines or whatever. I guess that was that's an old school way of doing it, but you know, um, through through a, an online survey. But in fact, you, you, it's an efficient thing to do if it gives you very immediate feedback um, as to where kids are and allows you to actually meet them where they are and not waste all the time we do in schooling of having things inappropriately targeted for kids that really don't meet their needs because we've standardized tests and our tests don't really look at their activity in practice, their activity in, a, in an ongoing way. 100%. Something that we think about at Sora, and this is one of the toughest problems I think facing the progressive education or, or whatever you want to call us field right now is, um, yes, we have all these methods of assessment that may be more instructive or, or helpful for students improving themselves. But at the end of the day, a question we get constantly from more traditionally minded families is, okay, but how are they going to be able to use this to get their first job or more realistically, how are they going to use this to get into college, right? So, um, what is the world of perhaps you know we don't have to comment on this if um, if you don't like but what does the world look like um, when we have these you know less standardized forms of assessment but we still have scarce resources or scarce opportunities might I say you know I think the portfolio is something that we're going to be turning to more and more and I think if young people are able to articulate what they've done, how they've learned and grow from it, and show examples of that. I think we can largely bypass the the college acceptance problem based on grades and test scores and things like that, because I think colleges, in fact, are are oriented towards looking at 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 people, even you know, even a large system like the UC system or a state system. Um, University of California. I just think I'm, I'm in California, so that's that's. But but all of these all of these systems, um, you know, have 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 capacity to look at, at portfolios. And I think when we um, when we think about about the importance of having diversity in our student bodies in college, when we think about the importance of of not monoculturing um, learning and what what learning is, I mean Richard Feynman, the the great the great um, physicist, he spoke to the to the problem to society when we when we narrow the intellect what's valued intellectually in our schools and of young people we have it's just like it's just like losing biodiversity we lose intellectual diversity and a portfolio with a kid that can argue as to why the things they put in it whether it's art engineering math writing literature any of the things that they they feel represent their their capacity that that can allow for this this greater diversity that we are seeking in society right now this honoring 
honoring of, of assets, no matter where people come from. So, so I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I was speaking. You did. To... You did. Okay. And, and thank you so much for taking it down that rabbit hole, because that's my axe to grind as well, which is, uh, and it's a, a tad bit radical until I explain it, but truly standardized curriculum is in some ways anti-diversity because we need although it's important to have uh, you know common vocabulary and the things that as a society we agree to social contracts these are important but at the end of the day to solve these increasingly complicated problems plaguing our society we need diverse perspectives and how do we gain diverse perspectives through diverse experiences right so it's really crazy to me when we talk about um and yes we've been this is all we've known traditional you know standardized scope and sequence of of an education but it doesn't seem aligned with the goals we have as a society right we can't in my mind we can't talk about the importance of diversity and diversity measures without talking about how we're going to create diverse experiences for our children mm-hmm. oh, yeah i love that in fact i I, if I may, if I may take it, take you know, take it down another little tangent. I think, I think by standardizing too much, we drive away some people, and we create, um, we create like like my 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 brother always says. I think a lot of the anti-science sentiment in society is caused by people having bad science experiences in school, um, and and I think we create an anti-intellectual sentiment by not honoring where people come from and letting them cultivate and develop that in ways that are true to them and true to their personal experience. So I think we create more, not more diversity, but more polarization um, by trying to standardize too much. I honor, I, I really value what you've just said. I think it's really important. That's wonderful. It's a great point. It's a great point. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about some practical things that we can try to implement in a classroom. I'm sure that's the focus of many of your yourself and your colleagues um, through your work at the Connected Learning Lab. So um, perhaps I can frame it like this. What is an easy adjustment, or I guess easier in the grand scheme of things, adjustment that schools or perhaps individual teachers themselves can make um, to reap a big improvement, whether it's in outcomes or, or uh, student satisfaction. So what, what's a change that they can do to, to improve the school or classroom? That's interesting. Um, I, think, I think giving, giving kids um, projects, letting them, letting them play a little bit more in school, with materials, with and I'm thinking younger kids when I talk about materials. I think it's a little more important at that age, but but more exploration time. We put so much pressure on on young people getting through a lot of content, and I think learning is essentially a playful activity, and it and it requires exploration. It requires messing around. It requires just getting to know phenomena more generally. And after that happens, the more canonical knowledge is easier to absorb. There's a researcher, he's the Dean of um, School of Education at Stanford now, who's shown that again and again in his work, that if you if you get people messing around some familiarity with, with a phenomena, you know, a problem, and it's not quite that easy to solve, and, you know, and, and they and they think about it a little, and they don't get it right, but they're, but they're, they've, they've built some, um, some intuitions about the phenomena or the problem. So say it's a, you know, say it's an engineering kind of thing. Like how do I, how do I make this room cooler? Or say it's a, you know, it's like what's why are you know why are why are there broken up leaves? And as you go down in the soil, it gets finer and finer and finer until you hit clay or whatever. Any of those things, you know, just just touching the stuff, feeling the stuff, looking at it, thinking about it. Um, even even you know playing a game that talks about I don't know ancient history. Any of these things prime. 
the pump to get more into the into the canonical information and so so having more of that kind of time in school and then letting that that go down the deeper um, you know less pressure to cover a lot of content I think that's a you know that can be that can be a relatively simple thing let's have let's have you know, not the, the, the mile wide inch deep, but more time to play with a narrower band of things that, that we, we expect kids to, to kind of get to know well. Um, my son in kindergarten at a progressive school he went to, they did a 13 week unit on penguins in kindergarten. They did their math through penguins. They did their, they did their science through penguins. They did their language arts and their, and their physical arts. And we still have some of his penguin, now he's in his mid twenties. We still have some of his paper mache and, and other kind of penguin things, but, but, you know, and, but he, he learned so much and there was so much depth. They, they relative weight of emperor penguins versus chin strap penguins. I mean, I remember it all. How can you not when you spend that much time in it? And, and it was fantastic. Just fantastic. That's so funny and an adorable mental image. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we think a lot about Sora being an online school, um, switching gears a little bit here, is how can we encourage healthy relationships with technology? Because technology, using a personal anecdote, technology both transformed my life because I was a kid in central Texas with not too many opportunities um, for learning or, or peers around me. It completely changed my access to information, how I view the world, but it also completely derailed my life through you know these uh, maladaptive behaviors like, like video gaming too much and all these things. So how do you think about the role of, of technology and also how students and parents can make sure it's a healthy healthy relationship. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a fact of life, and every technology that humans have introduced have changed society. Um, now we have this digital technology, and I'm sure that everyone listening to this podcast and everyone in your school thinks, wow, we have access to a lot more resources. And we also don't have to worry about memorization and carrying around a lot of, as we said before, facts and fragments. What we have is the opportunity to connect with like-minded people. And you know, we obviously also want to connect with not like-minded people, so we keep up our connection to a broad range of people in the world. But, but I mentioned before the idea of apprenticeship and, and how, how brilliantly technology allows us to, to learn from one another online, and um, that is digital technologies and the, and the internet specifically. Um, and, and we mustn't shy away from that. Uh, everybody needs to use discipline in their lives. Everybody needs to needs to um, think about about using their time well, using their human resources well. There are some there are some particular pitfalls of digital technology. A lot of you know gaming uh, gaming um, resources and apps and such are, are truly designed to be rather addictive, and and that's you know and that's something that that's that's something that we we all have to grapple with, but. But I think the possibilities for finding supports, finding like-minded people for your learning opportunities, and, and of course, all of the amazing the amazing intellectual resources, whether it's a YouTube how-to video or, you know, or open source classes or, or libraries that are online, those are, you know, those are just so, you know, they, they really are a resource we'll always be using. And I think, um, you know, I think to, um, 
well, one of my favorite, one of my favorite online um, platforms is is Community Share, which is based in Tucson, Arizona. And what they do is kids in school who have in school in face to face school, they they match them up with people who know about things they want to learn. So it's it's this really creative and clever um, apprenticeship platform that 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 capitalizes on the human library around us people who people who know know things that we want to know and you know that that to me is one of the one of the best um one of the best uh, uses of technology that i know i really and the people that are working on this on this are fantastic now i i also want to say we you know we always will live in an embodied world and the pandemic you know humbles us before our physicality that we really have to pay attention to that too so so one of the things i think parents and even online schools can do is just 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 keep keep thinking about kids engagement with with the physical world i also serve on the board of an organization called nature bridge which is a the, one of the largest environmental education organizations and residential environmental organizations in the country and they um, partner with the National Park Service they started as the Yosemite Institute and and I firmly believe that kids need time in the natural world touching feeling seeing smelling um, and that without that we really lose a lot of our humanity and you know I, as much as I as much as I live in this connected learning lab space as a professional I also spend as much time as I can out of doors and a lot of kids don't have you know whether they're in inner cities or otherwise they don't have that that exposure and I think I think it's a lot of it is just about balance and all of us being attentive to helping one another work our way through to being reflective and um, and self-aware and self-awareness is a really important part of living in our contemporary world. Well said. Well said. I want to make sure we have time to talk about your equi- Equitable Futures Initiative with, um, is it the Gates Foundation? Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about um, what what that's all about. Yeah, well, it's, it's really a lovely thing that Gates has started. They were in K-12, they moved to post-secondary education and they thought you know that's not everything in learning as you and I have discussed a lot of informal out of school everyday family-based learning really matters and they and and they recognize also that that the education pathway is not the same as the career pathway these things are not isomorphic they don't line up exactly you know you can study one thing and do something quite different in your career as is quite obvious um, and so what they're what they're really seeking is is ways to reach um, communities that that may have you know fewer of the parents that can line them up with you know with their buddy who who runs the research lab or you know there's a lot of there's a lot of social capital when you're wealthy and you have or even middle middle income and have connections to a wide range of, of more um, a diversity of job opportunities and ones that may may be better paying and offer career pathways that aren't as well represented in in, um, in, in communities that are that are more low income um, and so the, the goal there is to really think about how racialized our, our our career pathways are and to really think about how we can work to change that and there are a lot of really wonderful community-based organizations out-of-school organizations that are really working on that and what we've um, managed to do in that work is is match um, some young junior scholars with a lot of experience in those communities to programs that work in that space and they may be ones that help young people think about the racialization of career opportunities may give them exposure to a wider range of career opportunities may um, help them with some skill building but you know ultimately 
help them meet more people who can, and ideally people from their own communities who've, who've found a broader range of career opportunities and um, because of that have, have greater economic and also social opportunity and ultimately what would be really the best thing is to help young people reshape some of these these career pathways so that so that um, communities of color um, and and kids from lower income um, areas can really can really own more of the more of their more agency in, in what they really want to do with their lives and how they get there um, so, so Gates is really looking for ways to support this. Um, our lab did a study um, on occupational identity, how young people think about themselves and their futures, and um, and now we're doing this network building project, which is looking to looking at all these different programs across the nation that are working with young people and thinking what's really the, the what are some of the best strategies and how do we help them help them. Um, help these programs really support young people um, to build the, the kind of future lives they want. I think as a school, we say the school of the 21st century, that our purpose is truly a community accountability and inspiration. That's content is ubiquitous. And it sounds like your approach, although similar, um, really gets at the inspiration piece and what I mean by that you can correct me if I'm wrong but this is my perception where um, really since information's everywhere what we need to do is inspire kids either give them the inkling of a possibility might I even say in your situation that this is a possibility and something that they should be exploring um, accountability and, and community is also touched on you know giving them those role models but um, it sounds like we are in, at least have a similar hypothesis if I'm understanding correctly of inspiring kids because if if someone's truly inspired, like that St. Augsbury quote, I, I won't try to quote it, but you need to just inspire people to chase after what they want. Don't give them instructions, give them inspiration. Give, and give them, as you're indicating, people around them that, that they, can, they, they can model their behavior after and learn from. Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of skill building programs, a lot of instructional programs just don't end up changing opportunity or behavior we really need we really need community connections and and that inspiration gets back to the the interests of values and and um and even joy that that motivates people to 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 do more than they would otherwise um you know berating people is never never the way to help them learn and school kind of functionally does that a lot of times Old, old style school <laughs> right we like to say the default mode of school is threats that's yeah. that's the tool they use over and over right if you don't do this the tacit implication is that uh you know you're gonna be a failure whatever that yeah. means in society and I, i'm gonna make cause that to happen if you don't obey me which is a weird power dynamic so um especially your comments from earlier about the informal learning structures and you know how can you engage communities to to inspire kids and hold them accountable um, is such such an important problem and that's the biggest problem we face as a school because notice I said community first in in terms of what we're trying to do because you just want to give students those relatable peers those peers who are uh, who they want themselves to be because like it or not usually you do fall to the level of those you surround yourselves with <laughs> exactly. so how can we give students better role models better better peers to um, to achieve their own their own uh, vision of themselves because rarely students are born you know 
uh, without ambition. Right. Students usually, every kid has an ambition. So it's how do you surround them so that they can become that version of themselves? I love that. If I may rephrase what you what you've said, what I've heard is that you know, inspiration is number one. If we're really motivated because we care and emotionally we care and emotionally we're engaged, we we go for it. You know, the the there's this. Activated patient model. You know, if somebody in your fa- as an adult, if somebody in your family is sick or you're sick, you learn everything you can, right? Well, everybody's activated around something. Everybody comes into the world, just as you said, ready to learn and learn things that particularly interest them. So that inspiration layer is first. And then you also talked about social norms. Social norms are really powerful. And everybody wants to be accepted and be part of a community and do the things that their community does in one way or another. You may be a little bit of a, you know, you may be a little bit quirky or whatever, but you still want to be known, loved, all those things. So, so those two things in and of themselves create the motivational framework for most of our learning and and threats stress is actually uh you know just in terms of brain chemistry undermines the learning process um none of us learn when we're when we're when we're scared we just run it's flight fight or flight and that's it so so it's so demotivating to to feel under threat and and that's what a lot of traditional schooling ends up doing especially to those kids that haven't gotten excited by the game and there's only a small percentage of kids that get excited by the game of schooling and most of them aren't very happy ultimately playing that game because they want something more authentic yes 100 percent. yes two pieces of research had jumped out at me as you were saying that one is just um i don't remember which research group did either actually which is not helpful at all to the listeners (laughs) but one is just um the the uh subjective well-being test for different um different experiences and what they consistently find is that schooling the traditional school experience falls way 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 below um even average like um enjoyment so it usually falls in the bottom one to two things i believe um I believe the lowest one is usually, you know, taking care of of somebody sick, and then schooling is right above that in terms of enjoyment. So, um, although although what all our nostalgia colors our our memories to say, kids do not enjoy school. We remember, like on a day to day sitting in the classroom, on average, kids are not having a you know a very fun time. Um, that's one piece that I think many adults forget because we remember the very positive experiences of, you know, our the dances we went to and the friends we made and the sports practices. But when you really get down to it, this is a full-time job for 13 years, right? And there's a lot of dull moments that we forget. And, you know, and, and I love what you said because one of the things we, we do remember some, some of the things that we learned that were really interesting to us, but learning and schooling are not the same thing. So, you know, so we... we we care about learning stuff. Everybody likes to learn. I mean, it's just, you know, not necessarily in a traditional sense, but the process of schooling is quite painful for most people most of the time. I totally agree. And I think this is not exactly indicative of my own personal beliefs, but I think a challenging thing when you show people this is, um, and it, before I say it, it reminds me of the quote, um, if school started from infancy, we'd be convinced no one would learn without it. Like, right. if, you know, if, if we were teaching things like walking in school, we would be convinced that uh, school is the only reason anyone can walk. But when you show people the, for example, the um, 
the literacy rates before compulsory education took hold in, say, England and these places that track these things, you see that it's actually way higher than you would expect, right? So, um, I, I mean, I do believe the role of school. Obviously, I started one, but there are informal learning taking it full circle is much more powerful, and learning is a natural process, and people forget this because learn schools in many in many respects teaches us how not to enjoy learning or to hate it and avoid it. Yeah, I, I sometimes have talked about the non-problem of learning. We we talk about learning as if it's the biggest problem in the world. Why how can, how can we get kids to learn more? But learning learning in and of itself is not a problem. The problem is how we structure learning experiences and opportunities in school in ways that that as you've indicated are demotivating. Um, absolutely, totally agree. Totally agree. Well, I think that's a great point to end on so thank you so much for being here let's before we hop off let's say if people want to keep up with you or the connected learning labs work how would you how would they do that um you could just look at our website connected learning lab at uc irvine it's very easy to find us do a google search and there's you know there's information about different programs information about the affiliated faculty our staff Thank you for listening to this episode of SOAR's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.